0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Some of our listeners might recognize the name Clifford Thompson, whose work has been regularly appearing in our magazine. He's written about everything from soul music and the photography of Jamal Shabazz to Wendell Berry and the politics of race in the Trump era. But Cliff has also published fiction, poetry, two memoirs, and most recently, a graphic novel that he both wrote and illustrated. He also happens to be a prolific painter. His first solo show premiered earlier this month at the Blue Mountain Gallery in New York City. He's here today to speak with associate editor Griffin Olenek. That's coming up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi Griffin, it's good to have you here today. Hey Dominic, good to be here. So, believe it or not, and I'm sure you do believe it, this is the 100th episode of the podcast, and you and I have been at this for a while now. Uh, we began the podcast more than four years ago in late 2018, and since then, we've been bringing our audience two conversations per month about, I guess, just about everything, from politics and race to theology and spirituality to art, literature, music, and film.
1: Well, that's right. And that's exactly why we thought that Clifford Thompson would be the ideal guest for this 100th episode. As you mentioned, he's a versatile, gifted writer. He's done a lot of great writing for us recently on all kinds of things art, music, books, politics, and race. What's less well known about Cliff is that he's also an accomplished visual artist. He's a self taught painter. And this past month was his first solo show held at a gallery in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. I was actually able to travel down there to speak with him in person. And we were sitting there amidst all of his paintings. There were about 25 or so of them. And we were talking about everything, you know, the writing he's done for us, his memoirs. And it's all kind of there in the painting. So we were able to just sort of refer to them and weave them in organically into our conversation.
0: Well, that sounds great, Griffin. And there's also a special segment here that our audience will want to stick around for. And our special projects editor, Miles Doyle, is here to say something about that.
2: Yes, thank you. I was able to speak with contributor Kaya Oaks about the late Doris Grumbach, whose 1970 essay on Betty Friedan and Dorothy Day was reprinted in Commonweal after Grumbach's death last fall. It's the first conversation in a series of conversations we'll be having with current Commonweal contributors about writers from Commonweal's past. And we wanted to mark the 100th episode of the Commonweal podcast with a nod toward our upcoming 100th anniversary and year-long centennial celebration. We thought the best way, to to introduce this series was to invite Kaya, a longtime contributor to Common Wheel, to discuss Grumbach's Dispatch, because as you know well, Kaya has great experience writing about women in the church and about women who defy easy categorization. And we thought the 100th episode of the podcast was a perfect time to kick off this conversation. Well, 100 episodes, 100 years, it all
0: sounds great. And why don't we take a listen to this episode? So Clifford Thompson,
1: thanks so much for coming on the Common Wheel podcast. Thank you for having me. And I should say also happy birthday. It's your birthday in two days. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So we're here at Blue Mountain Gallery, an artist collective in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. It's the site of your first ever solo exhibition, and we're surrounded by 27 of your paintings. The show is beautiful and intriguing. And as you write, it tells a single story, that of the life of a person who draws sustenance from music, books, visual art, film, and family beginning in childhood. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and the figures that were most important to you.
3: Well, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was born in in the 60s. I lived in an entirely black neighborhood in D.C. And my family was very tight-knit. I was the youngest of four children by a long way. And my next sibling, to me, is 10 and a half years older. So I was greatly cared for. I say sometimes it felt like having uh, five parents, six, if you, <laughs> if you include my grandmother, who lived with us. So, so it was a very very nice childhood mm. that I had. The figures that were important to me, of course, my my family was important, as I said. My grandmother lived with us, and uh, I think my relationship with her—I loved her dearly—and I think my relationship with her is probably evident in at least one of the paintings. But in terms of figures, you know, there are figures in my family, there are figures who I looked up to outside the family. Uh, from early on, I was a big fan of the comics. Loved Peanuts, Charlie Brown. I also loved Marvel comics, and those seem pretty different, except they're kind of the same. And the Charlie Brown was confused a lot and kind of struggled and the Marvel heroes were these just confused guys. The Mm -hmm. difference being that they had superpowers. That's what I liked (laughs) about them. Yeah. So those two things really informed my sensibility, both from a I think a storytelling standpoint and a visual standpoint. Mm -hmm. You know, I really responded to the simple forms and peanuts and when I was twelve I got this book called Origins of Marvel Comics Mm. which explained the origin stories of the, the different heroes and the colors just exploded from the page and that really made an impression on me. Mm-hmm. And I think as much as anything else, those things have informed my visual sensibility. And this notion of the sort of confused young man definitely was something I wanted to try to capture, first in fiction, but then later in, in nonfiction, I think. Mm-hmm. It was just a, kind of a, something that really interested me. Well, it's so,
1: interesting to me, there are many of the paintings, which as you say, are quite colorful, actually were closest to the some of the paintings that depict a figure who's you, but also not quite you in childhood. And there's one where we have a little boy lying down on his stomach playing with toy soldiers. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's interesting to me is there's a kind of perspective, there's shadows being cast, but there are figures in the background. So there's a kind of imaginative solitude, but you're not alone. Mm. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that, that kind of tension between solitude and community that appears in your paintings, but is also so present in, in much of your writing.
3: That's really interesting. As I said, you know, I, I was uh, the youngest by a long way of four children. So I amused my father once by asking if he considered me an only child. And in some ways, I was like an only child because I was I was the only person in the house who was a child really, <laughs> when I was growing up. So, but at the same time, I had family right nearby, and I lived on a street with uh, two sets of aunts and uncles, mm-hmm. and another one further up the street. So there was always the sense that there were. Even though I was, you know, when I, when I played by myself or whatever, I was in my own world, but there were people not far away. So there, there was that comforting sense of family nearby, even while I was engaged in my own head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah.
4: One,
1: of, one of the works that I find most striking is The Gift from mm-hmm. 2020.
4: Yeah.
1: It has a deceptively simple composition with a small child handing a yellow daisy to an elderly woman, presumably the child's grandmother, as she's seated on a pink couch. There are two other figures in the frame. They're dressed entirely in white, and they're visible only from their necks on down. And they appear to be turning towards the, older, the elderly woman. And I'm wondering what's happening here. What might this represent? And what sorts of responses has the work received?
3: Right. Well, in some paintings, I try to create a little bit of mystery. And I think this is an example. Right? Mm-hmm. So to my mind, the grandmother is about to be taken somewhere else, maybe to a hospice. And uh, I wanted to, an element in the painting that was a little less sweet than the boy giving a flower to his grandmother. Mm-hmm. I wanted like a, a touch of the ominous. And, uh, and so the figures there are dressed in white like hospital workers. And uh, so I think what is happening there is that the grandmother is having a last moment at home before she has to go to this other place. Mm-hmm. And uh, the little boy senses something that's wrong, wants to, you know, wants to express his love for the grandmother and and hands her this flower
1: it's interesting too because her face she seems very calm sort of composed and she has this beautiful i guess you would call it a frock but it covers her like a blanket there are beautiful patterns both on the floor and on the wallpaper behind. Could you talk a bit about that too? The kind of the stylistic choices that you made? Sure,
3: sure, yeah. Color is a big thing for me. As I said, I really responded to the colors in, in the comics that I read as a kid. And the art I tend to respond to makes... Use of bold color. I really like the work of the Fauves you know, mm-hmm. and, and, of course, the Impressionists. And that's the kind of work I respond to. Yeah, time.
1: I'm thinking of that moment from your memoir, Twin of Blackness, which we'll get into and talk a bit more in depth later. But where you describe going to the Barnes Museum in Philadelphia, which famously has a large collection of paintings by Henri Matisse. And, and you mentioned gravitating towards that simple but explosive color mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but what might that be about that that there's that sort of tension as you mentioned between the dark and the
3: light right yeah the dark and the light thematically well people have responded to the painting and asked me about it and some have said that it made them sad and some were just more curious about it and a couple of people asked me if the two attendant figures are angels mm-hmm. who have come to take her to heaven mm-hmm. and that's well that that works well, there's too, a beautiful you know. interpretation. yeah <laughs> that works too so I, you know, yeah. I really feel like with these more mysterious paintings that, that the viewer's interpretation is just as valid as mine. If that interpretation of it makes sense for you, that's great. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well,
1: there's a note here at the gallery that talks about how your work has been compared to that of Jacob Lawrence, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. famous yeah. African-American painter who did the series The Great Migration <laughs> yeah. about the movement of African-Americans from the South. Yeah. I was thinking as I was looking at the paintings, which again were surrounded by, There is a kind of migration that the works trace or a Mm, kind of evolution. mm. It is one story, as you say. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that, how that works. What are the different elements that are most important in the story, which, as you say, is your story, but also... You have this question: Is it possibly also the viewer's story? Right, right.
3: Yeah, it's certainly different from uh, Jacob Lawrence's work, and that it's more the story of an individual, and as opposed to millions of people who migrated north. But it, you know, it does definitely traces some elements of a life, and including the interests of the mm-hmm. figure depicted. Right. So there's like childhood play. Soon there, are, you know, there are paintings uh, showing film. There's a lot of music. There are uh, paintings that reference writing. You know, the subject of visual art itself. You know, jazz is a big influence on me, so there, there, there's one painting called jazz. There are several more paintings that reference jazz. There's one called blues. The first painting that, or one of the first paintings that references film, the film shown on the wall at the theater is uh, Cooley High, which came out in 1975, which... Uh, which made a very big impression on me. uh, Well,
1: tell us about that. What impression did it make or describe what phase you were in your life? Sure. So I was 12,
3: and I was 12 when I saw that. And um, the characters in it are like seniors in high school, so they were were just these cool guys. But it was also set in the 60s, and so there's a music connection too because Motown music figures prominently in the film, and that really turned me on to Motown. So, you know, I, I enjoyed the storytelling aspect of it. I enjoyed the music. And, you know, this was the mid-70s when there were not a whole lot of stories or movies that that featured Black people. So I really responded to it for, mm-hmm. those, for those reasons. <laughs> I did, it really just became a touchstone for me. Yeah.
1: Another one of my favorite paintings is Drawing from 2019. Mm-hmm. And it depicts a young man seated from behind. There's an overhead lamp and a darkened window indicating that it's nighttime. And he's working on storyboards and an art table with a yeah. stack of books on one side of the table and a trumpet sort of standing casually on the other. Yeah. And you just mentioned jazz as well as film, painting. And I want to ask you, how do you understand the connection between all of these different arts and how have they
3: interacted in your life? Right. So what really excites me as a writer and just as a person are thinking about the various connections among the art forms that I love, you know, books, film, jazz, visual art, and also the the connections between art and life. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's something I've written about for years now. So yeah, my book, Love for Sale, came out in 2013. It's a collection of essays. There are personal essays as well as pieces on books, film, jazz, and and visual art. When I won the uh, Whiting Award for nonfiction in 2013, it was on the strength of this book. Mm -hmm. So I want to read a brief passage from a piece about the jazz tenor saxophonist Coleman Hawkins was really the first important jazz saxophonist. He's actually referenced in a painting called The Hawk's Soars. So, I'm talking here about Coleman Hawkins and his great rival Lester Young, and so the comparison here is to literature. So, born in 1909, nicknamed The President, soon shortened to Prez by his soulmate Billie Holiday, Lester Young was Hawkins's arch rival. He couldn't top the sheer force of Hawkins's playing. Nobody could. But he developed a very different style that some came to prefer to it. While Hawkins approached chords like an athlete training on stadium steps, going up, going down, hitting every note, Young, in his light tones spun out haunting passages that were based on harmonies, yet linear, merely suggesting the chords. So that whereas Hawkins was descended from the Thomas Hardy of the mayor of Casterbridge, telling you not only what happened, but how it felt and what it meant, Young claimed as Ken, the Hemingway of the sun also rises, giving spare accounts and letting you imagine the rest for yourself. Mm. Uh, so...
1: So it's beautiful. There's this kind of, well, there is this jazz-like quality, I think, to your writing. And you have that beautiful quote where you talk about jazz being like writing, but also like life. Could you speak a bit about that idea that you have where there's a kind of, there is a structure, there's a story that
3: we're all participating in, but there are also solos that each of us play. Right, right, right. So uh, yeah, my idea was that in a traditional jazz piece, there's the statement of a theme at the beginning. Often, usually, it comes back at the end of the playing of the theme. But in between, you could think of the theme as being circumstances of a life. This is what we come from. But then the solos begin. And it's that part that's really interesting because that's the person who has come from these circumstances now making something of their life. It's like, okay, these are your set of circumstances. What do you do about that? And at the end, we come back to the theme having heard what the individual has made of all this mm-hmm. in the interim. So I, so I feel like it's like life that way. I'll be 60 in a couple of days and, you know, you get to a certain point and you start reflecting on where you came from and what you've made of that and you start thinking about all of it together and it is, I feel like there are parallels with with jazz that way.
1: Mm -hmm. And sort of, it's evident also in so many of the paintings that there's it does come full circle. Mm. One of the most recent paintings that you have, and probably one of the most poignant, it's on the postcard of the show, is Coming Home mm. from mm. 2022. It depicts a young boy hugging his father's legs in front of a door, and the father's looking down tenderly at the child. Could you talk about this painting? Sure,
3: sure, yeah. The way I see that painting, the father has come home from the outside world, which you don't see, but but what which I hope you see in the bearing of the father. He's arrived at home, and he's just letting go of the tension of Mm -hmm. being in the outside world. And so the child is hugging him, and the father needs just just kind of a moment to compose himself Mm. before he enters the family life and family home. And so and so I tried to capture that moment in, in the painting. He's looking down. He's going to interact with the child and also the woman whose shadow you see on the floor. This is the moment before that happens. So that's what I tried to capture.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that kind of tension between interiority and the city. The mm-hmm. city is such a big feature yeah. in these paintings. Could you talk a bit about that? You know, the presence of windows, the presence of, of New York City, which has been your
3: home for decades. Sure, sure. Yeah. The earliest painting in the show is called My City, and uh, it depicts a young boy looking at film projection of my favorite places in the city, basically. The Strand Books, there's a film forum, there's uh, the Museum of Modern Art. Mm-hmm. And the, it's a little hard to describe verbally, but it, the building seems to be conjured from the bell of a saxophone mm-hmm. that's being played. Mm-hmm. So I think of that, that painting as a big bang of the, sh- of the, of mm. the show because it contains all the themes, right? There's a child. There's music represented. There's the books. There's a the film. There's visual art, and uh, there's a
1: community too. And there's, there's a, a community. Yes, yeah. there are
3: people. There are people in it. Yes, and so you know, I I love cities. I've been in New York since the mid '80s. The fact that I'm here is important to me. And so th- there are paintings that show uh, cityscapes out through the window. It's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I never get very far from my childhood. When I was in about second grade, our class had this reading book that was called My City. Hmm. And I have great memories. Of it. I, I got to get a copy of that book, but I, I have great <laughs> memories of it. It was just such a simple thing. But I, I love the stories hmm. in that book. So yeah. that stayed with me.
1: So there's, I should say, almost all of the figures, performers, concert goers, writers and readers depicted across the works in the show are black. You've written extensively about race for Commonweal and elsewhere, especially in your memoir, which we've mentioned several times, Twin of Blackness. You preface it with a beautiful prelude, sort of like the jazz theme that you mentioned, and I want to ask you to read it briefly. Sure,
3: sure. Okay, so yeah, this is the prelude to Twin of Blackness. Let's see. I have come to think of blackness as my twin. The proof is that we came along at the same time. 1963, the year of my birth, also brought the March on Washington and Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. I feel toward blackness the way one might toward a twin. I love it, and in a pinch I defend it. I resent the baggage that comes with it. I've been made to feel afraid of not measuring up to it. I am identified with it whether I want to be or not, and never more than when I assert an identity independent of it.
1: So I love that quote. And in the memoir, you detail some of the thinkers, artists, and critics who helped you arrive there. Yeah. I'm thinking of Albert Murray, James Baldwin. What wisdom and nourishment might they provide in today's fraught conversations about race, identity, and social justice?
3: Sure. Albert Murray's work was very important to me. I I had the good fortune to meet and spend time with him. When I worked at Current Biography Magazine, which is a reference publication, I went up to Harlem to his apartment and, uh, and interviewed him. And uh, we stayed in touch after that. I would go to his apartment once or twice a year until he died in 2013 at age 97. Albert Murray, I think, as much as anyone, gave me the sense there was no just screaming contradiction between being a black person and being an American, mm. that in fact, they were very much the same thing. I, I think for black people of my generation, there may be And a sort of unconscious belief that you have to, you're one or the other. If you're black, it almost makes no sense to identify with with America, which is a place which has caused the suffering of just untold numbers of black people. So how do you have pride in being black and also have pride in being an American? Well, you can realize that the contributions of black people to America are a very large part of what has made the country what it is. Mm -hmm. And so that insight really just helped me as a person, Mm -hmm. you know, and just gave me a sort of confidence I didn't have before in in just conducting my life in this country Mm -hmm. as a person with brown skin. So his work was a real find for me. And um, so in Torn of Blackness, I I think of it as tracing a journey toward some of these realizations Mm -hmm. and through my own experiences. You know, as a person who was raised in an entirely black community, and who, you know, made my way out into into the larger world where I often found myself in integrated situations and experienced some confusion and had to kind of sort through that. Of course, another person whose work became very important to me was James Baldwin. Baldwin really was the first figure I discovered who both railed against racism, but also without ever Im- embracing prejudice himself. Mm. That was a very important combination mm. for me. And I, and before I discovered his work, I had not seen that modeled in a public way. Mm-hmm. So that became and remains very important to me. Mm. It's interesting. I have children and they're grown at this point. They're in their 20s. And uh, what I found interesting, one thing I found interesting was that my, my younger child in college, this child is biracial. And became very involved in their campus's uh, black student organization. Mm-hmm. So, so necessarily had black friends, but also white friends. And I feel like that, that gave me encouragement because I feel like when I was in college in the 80s, I feel like you just weren't allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. You, know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, could, uh, right. you know, it's like, okay, well, you, you with them, you with us, well, you know, who, who are you, what are you, right. you know, who are you with? I was very inc- encouraged by that. You know, it, when I was in college, I, they used to call an incognito. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, and you, <laughs> you, know, you
1: went to Oberlin, I went right? to Oberlin, yeah. And you talk <laughs> about there were only a couple hundred black people mm-hmm. on campus. Mm-hmm. You said, yeah.
3: Yeah. So I think that that may be one difference. The country is in such a strange place right now. There's one faction that is trying, and with some success, to drag us back to where we were a hundred years ago. There's another faction, which, you know, which I mostly identify with, that is just talk to them and you're just all, almost afraid to open your mouth because you're going to say something offensive without meaning to and it's strange to think that this all exists in the same country an example of uh, just the polarization that we're that that we have right now um I don't know if I have any great wisdom to pass on to younger <laughs> people but but my hope is that there is just more fostering of common ground among different traditionally oppressed factions of people because we really can't get anywhere otherwise it's um We are having to fight battles that we thought we'd already won related to the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted, Roe v. Wade, which is overturned, and the things that we thought that had been accomplished and we could move on from from there. And now we've got to go back and fight those same battles again. I really love and appreciate and encourage alliances. I think that's where salvation lies.
0: We'll have more of Griffin's Conversation with Clifford Thompson in a minute.
1: alan konick executive director of commonweal with our centennial just around the corner in 2024 now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program thank you very much for your support it helps make everything we do at commonweal our publications our programming and this podcast possible Well, you mentioned the polarization that exists in America right now, which we're all living, breathing, lamenting. And that becomes the background of your graphic novel, Big mm. Man and the Little Man, which you published last
3: fall. Could you talk a bit about that? There? Sure, yeah. sure. So to offer some background, so I, as a boy, I, did, I wrote and drew my own comics. I made mm. them up. And that, that was really the beginning of both my writing and my visual art. In my upper teens, I gave up comics and uh, focused on, on writing. But the visual art impulse stayed with me, and in my 40s, I just started painting all the time. and so the graphic novel for me represents a couple of things really It's, uh, it's both a sort of reuniting of the writing and visual art impulses that I have, mm-hmm. and it's a really it's a rare occurrence of a childhood dream coming true. When I was a child when I, when I was a boy, I, my, my entire ambition in life was to become a comic book writer and artist. Mm. And so to have Big Man and the Little man come out in November, it was like the realization of a childhood dream, mm-hmm. which I feel incredibly lucky about mm. that. So about the story itself, the main character, April Wells, who's a black woman, is a writer and is embedded with the presidential campaign of the presumed Democratic nominee. The Democrat's opponent is this very divisive, racist figure. And... uh at one point, April is approached by a woman who claims that the Democrat assaulted her. Mm-hmm. So April now faces a dilemma. Does she report this and possibly help the really objectionable opponent, or does she sit on it and not do her job? Mm. Right. So, and, and things get more complicated from there. Mm. I see April as, I think I wrote somewhere, I see April as being my ideal reader. She's intelligent. She's sometimes sad for reasons she doesn't entirely understand. She has a bit of imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. because she's not actually a journalist. Mm -hmm. As I try to suggest in the book, the reason that she has given this assignment ultimately is because she's not a journalist. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, the people responsible for the assignment, they think they can put one over on her. Mm -hmm. And she has a little bit of a surprise for them. You know, as I was reading it, I was trying to think
1: about, well, why is this a graphic novel? Why not either a novella or a full-blown novel? It's interesting, too, that you would say that your ideal reader is like April, mm-hmm. who's looking for the right thing to do, mm-hmm. but there's nobody to sort of tell you what to do, and you're really not that kind of writer. Can you talk a bit about how you do that in your writing? Your your painting has this quality of drawing the viewer in and not telling the viewer what to think necessarily, mm-hmm. but your writing does the same. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit more about that, the kind of conversation that, that you try mm-hmm. to have in your writing and your painting.
3: Life is complex, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like if somebody comes along and is telling me, look, you got to think this way or you're stupid, I'm out the door. There, There is usually more than one way of thinking about something. And I'm also allergic to any sort of thinking that demonizes entire groups of people, whoever those people are. And I've had some people say that your, your writing is nuanced, and I'm happy about that because if what you're telling me is too, too simple and too easy, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm deeply suspicious. I, I, try to, I guess I try to take that into account when I'm thinking about a subject. I, I think that sort of simplistic thinking is the source of a lot of our trouble now. Yeah, there's, there's this attempt to erase any sort of history that, that casts America in a bad light, as if America has to be perfect or we're doomed, you know? Mm. Particularly as a black person, I see America as representing ideals that we try to live up to, and mm. sometimes we succeed. I think that is the only realistic way to look at the country. And if if you're trying to get rid of anything that tells a story that is less than exemplary, you mm-hmm. you're lying. And I also don't have much patience for people who see nothing of value in America because I feel like if you're looking at America and seeing either just worthlessness or perfection, then you have a very limited point of view. You know, that mm-hmm. it, it's if you're trying to paint again if you're trying to paint a a portrait of america that is just shining and completely exemplary then you're just you're lying to people
1: well can i ask you what are some of the things that you find valuable about Mm. america yeah
3: yeah the fact that at least officially ideally on paper it is committed to the idea of freedom and equality and democracy. Those things. <laughs> those things. As much trouble as we have living up to those things, at least you you have a plan at the start of the day and maybe the plan goes horribly awry and tomorrow you just have to start again, but you have a plan. Mm. I think that's what separates America from other places. Mm. We have this plan and sometimes we are terrible at realizing the plan or following the plan, but the plan is there.
1: Well, I thought we could close by bringing up a concept that you've written about for Commonweal, which you call rootedness. Mm. And and it appears elsewhere in your writing. How do you understand rootedness? Where do you see it today? Mm. And how do you think we can foster more of it?
3: I feel rootedness is an essential thing in human life because the way I define it is just having something to attach yourself to that's bigger than you, Mm. right? So maybe you're rooted in in your community and then serving your community, Mm. or maybe you're rooted in the beliefs and values of the Catholic church or in, in Judaism or in maybe your whole family is musical. So, so music is the source of Mm. your identity, whatever it is, it gives you a way of just being in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's a good thing, but it's also a double-edged sword because particular ways that you're rooted can interfere with your ability to see what's in front of you. So for example, if you're, if you are rooted in just a belief in the goodness of America, mm. which many people are, then you object to any sort of negative depiction of America, mm. no matter how accurate it may be. Mm. So, on the one hand, rootedness is a is an important and vital and uh, just necessary thing, mm. to just to kind of anchor yourself as a person. Mm. On the other hand, it can often interfere with uh, just understanding what's going on around you. Mm. So... In my book, What It Is, I say that to me, the ideal way to be is to be like a tree, which is firmly rooted, but stands tall enough to see around, to see what's going on around you. And that to me is the ideal. Be rooted in something, but to recognize, be able to see things clearly. So Mm -hmm. that's how I define it. Mm.
1: Is there something we can do to become more rooted, which paradoxically might make us Even blinder, (laughs) it might make us see less clearly.
3: Um, I I think people are plenty rooted already, and I I think that's the trouble. The trick is to be rooted, but also to be able to see around you, right? So, I think a a lot of the trouble we're having is um, with books being banned and the discussions of oppression being being uh, people want to avoid that. It's because of this rootedness in this idea of America as this just this perfect place, and I think that's terribly misguided. And I, I think what's wiser is. To be er- rooted in the belief in America as a place that tries to live up to its mm-hmm. ideals, sometimes mm-hmm. fails, but continually strives. Mm-hmm. I, that, to me, is a much more sustainable model of rootedness. And that would allow you to recognize and acknowledge injustice when it occurs. Mm-hmm. And, and instead, it's a black man gets shot. And the first question some people ask is, well, what was he doing there anyway? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean, what was he doing there? He got shot. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the first thing we should be addressing? Mm-hmm. But because they're so rooted in this idea that it can't be America's fault. or And, you know, I, I think, frankly, some people are rooted in the idea of their own whiteness. They identify with whiteness. And so if, like, a white cop shoots a black kid, they're like, well, kid must have been doing something wrong. And so yeah, I, what I really wish people could do is just see beyond the strict limits of their rootedness.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. That
3: That is, that's what I wish for. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's something that the
1: show does, too, is it really by drawing you in, it allows you to sort of rethink what you value. I guess now I can phrase the question a different way and say, as you approach 60,
3: what are you finding yourself most rooted in today? My family. Yeah. You know, both my immediate family, my wife, our children, my siblings I grew up with, my nephew and nieces and grandnephews and grandnieces. They're very important to me. And also a sense of exploration of the things I love. I'm just always trying to learn more about the things I love. You know, whether it's mm. investigating jazz albums that I haven't checked out, areas of literature, great films that I might have missed. It's just this quest to appreciate as, as much as I can in the time that I have. And if I'm really lucky, then I have an idea of how to write about it. Cliff, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on the Commonwealth
0: Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
3: Coming up next,
0: Miles Doyle speaks with Kaya Oaks.
2: Kaya, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast, and thank you for joining us. Before we start our conversation, I wonder if you would read the opening of Doris Grumbach's piece, Father Church and the Motherhood of God.
4: She is 72 years old, slightly stooped, and her scanty yellow-white braid is wound about her head in the same way it has always been. Her eyes are red-rimmed from straining to see, and sometimes tear-filled from disappointment at what is being said and her head turns slightly as she strains to hear. She wears a blue wool suit whose skirt reaches her calves. Her cane is on the floor under her seat. All around her are seated sprightly, smartly suited nuns and laywomen and men with elegant hairstyles and naturally dressed priests. There are 250 persons in this room whose windows look out over the hills of Garrison, New York, waiting, laughing, greeting each other, mostly on the young side, fresh-faced and white, prosperous and well-fed, and she seems an island among them, silent and eternal. A few well-pressed Greymore priests hover around the edges of the meeting. The craggy-faced lady waits for the speakers to arrive. She is here to listen to a description of a new battle after the long loneliness of all her other battles during more than 50 years of her life. Her name is Dorothy Day. She is perhaps the oldest person in the room, the most personally courageous in action and practice, already the most liberated.
2: You know, there was a time in Commonweal when Doris Grumbach was regularly sent to cover conferences at Graymoor. I've come to think of her beat as individuals and institutions, more specifically where the individual fits in within those institutions.
4: Absolutely. I found as a writer, she's quite a character, even when she's doing something like writing a book review. But in this piece, we definitely get to know her as a narrator who's very wry, W-R-Y. And in order to write about that balance between institutions and individuals, you have to take a step back and be an observer. That opening paragraph that zooms in on Dorothy Day really points out the difference between Dorothy Day as an individual and the people surrounding her who are part of an institution that is struggling to redefine itself and find its identity in the wake of Vatican II, but also how Dorothy Day represents, you know, she's kind of like the rock of ages in this scene. I think there's a number of moments when she, Doris Grumbach, hones in on that difference between Dorothy Day and the people around her, or how an individual stands out from this group of people asking questions. This piece was published in December 1970,
2: which was an interesting time in the church and the culture at large, both of which were undergoing significant changes. Chronologically speaking, Grumbach is in between Dorothy Day and Betty Friedan in terms of age, and she's hovering between two eras and two generations. As a writer, it seems that she's trying to make sense of what's going on, asking, how do we get here and what does it mean?
4: It is fascinating to think that both Betty Friedan and Dorothea Day could exist in the same Catholic imagination as representative of women in society, even if they weren't part in Betty Friedan's church, That not part case, not Catholic. But the fact, as you pointed out, that Doris is in between them. It's kind of like being a Gen Xer and sort of <laughs> being able to look at boomers and millennials and Gen Z and go right in the middle and be an observer of both and to see how they're both reacting to change in different ways. I also thought it was really hilarious how at the end of Betty Friedan's talk, it's a, she says, Doris observes her saying the question of the future, she concluded, is not God dead, but instead, is God he? The audience gasped. I love the observation there that the most controversial idea is that God might not be of a masculine gender. (laughs) And I think, again, that's something that most Catholics are probably willing to believe in that possibility, but it doesn't really come up in public conversation in the church much these days.
2: I think, too, this also speaks to how quickly things were accelerating or had already accelerated in the years after Vatican II. I imagine most of the people at this conference likely believe these changes would continue unabated. But I think what what Doris does really well in this is not to make any proud declarations of change or inevitability. She seems to be wrestling in real time with these currents of change.
4: Absolutely. And another thing that I was reminded of when I was reading these essays was that she was writing a lot of these around the same time that Joan Didion was writing books. Didion and Doris Grumbach seem both to be positioned as observers of these massive shifts in the culture. Didion, of course, looking at things like the hippie movement, but again, having that kind of wry distance and that willingness to kind of not be judgmental, but to let people shoot themselves in the foot, so to speak. Of (laughs) course, I'm thinking about the, I teach the essay slashing towards Bethlehem in my creative nonfiction classes and letting the parents of the child who's on acid at the age of five, let the child talk about the irresponsibility of the parent. Then in this case, let Betty Friedan do her shock stick and question the gender of God in front of a bunch of Catholics, which she probably knew was going to make everybody gasp. So I thought that common thread of women journalists and women who were culture critics, who were among the first generation of women to do this kind of writing, this kind of writing, of course, the new journalism was just emerging in this era. And so it's fascinating also that Wheel was publishing examples of things I would considered to be new journalism, but from a Catholic point of view, which also for, I think, probably for a Catholic magazine was pretty daring at this point in time. I agree with that.
2: And after Ferdinand's question, Grumbach immediately focuses on a young mother nursing her baby. It's as if she's poking fun a little bit at Friedan's questioning the gender of God. It's a bold statement, but ultimately she's asking, what does it mean? I think Grumbach does a really good job of reminding readers that there are other things going on amidst these conversations.
4: When she shifts to Dorothy Day as the last speaker, Doris points out that Dorothy Day said nothing about women's liberation, never mentioned the words, never stated her views on the subjects of economic inequality, careers, chores. Instead, she reminisced about her life, her daughter, family, as she's known, the poor, the work she's done, et cetera. And that's really fascinating, again, too, because it's in contrast We're back to show, don't tell, which I think is an overused trope in the writing of nonfiction, but one that I tell my students as well. But Mm -hmm. we're back to this idea of letting Dorothy Day be radical by her person rather than by shocking people, as Betty Friedan was wont to do. Now, I've also written about Dorothy Day myself and know from talking to people who knew her and accounts that she can be very cantankerous too, and very grumpy and very hard to get along with and angry and so on and so forth. But the focus really isn't on that. It's on her in her elder years as a kind of symbol of radicalism and stability at the same time. So there's a contrast there that's really interesting. But yeah, it's a great little snapshot scene and it, again, points to this struggle that women in the church were facing at that time of here's this push to reinvent everything, reinvent the wheel, change is coming. It's so exciting. Here we go. And then nothing happened for 50 years.
2: Which brings us back to this idea of Grumbach covering institutions and individuals. Within this discussion of changing in institutions, she seems to want readers to consider how, in the end, it's left to the individual to keep up and keep moving forward.
4: There's definitely a thread even in her book reviews and her culture writing, too, of that same theme of the individual trying to navigate changing times. When our times not changing, mm. right? But she lived in a very tumultuous era in, I mean, so do we today. But she got to be there for some <laughs> radical shifts, both in the church and in the nation. Kai Oaks, thank you. Thanks for giving me the chance.
0: Clifford Thompson's graphic novel, Big Man and the Little Man, is available now. You can read more of Clifford Thompson's writing for Commonweal on our website, and you can view his paintings online at cliffordthompson.info. You can find Doris Grombach's article on our website as well, along with all of the work that Kaya Oaks has done for Commonweal too. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.